What's scary about the world today? The WSJ Speakeasy podcast explores what's so scary about the world real and imagined with horror writers Victor Laval, Paul Tremblay, and Laird Barron. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Welcome to the WSJ Speakeasy podcast. I'm Michael Callia. Today I'm joined by three, count them, three of the most celebrated dark fiction, horror, weird fiction, whatever you want to call it, authors we have today. Uh, Laird Barron, who wrote the novella Man With No Name that was published earlier this year, among many other stories and works. Victor Laval, whose novella The The Ballad of Black Tom was published earlier this year to much acclaim. And Paul Tremblay, whose new book, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, just was published Tuesday to great acclaim. So you're you're all very good writers. We get it. <laughs> so um, so anyway, let, let's just talk about the state of the genre, or, or you know, the genre of horror. Let's let's go there because there's so many different ways to kind of get into dark fiction. Paul, you with with disappearance at Devil's Rock. Um, there's a spooky element, but there's also a um, a family element, an intimate element. Is that the key for good horror for you? Um, I mean, for me, it's definitely a personal interest of mine. Like, uh, it it doesn't even feel like a choice anymore. It feels like so many of my stories sort of gravitate toward some sort of relationship between children and parents or parents and children's you know, uh, children. Um, you know, to me, there's just, you know, practically an infinite well of material that you can work with. It's one of the few universal experiences that we all have. I mean, we've all been children. Um, we've all either had parents or, or guardians or some, you know, adult sort of supervision. And that journey from being a kid to an adult and that sort of that reverse journey of, as a parent, experiencing it from, uh, from you know, fr- experiencing your children growing up through your eyes is really sort of a, a t- it's a beautiful experience. But as a parent, I can say it's also unsettling yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are new realms of terror I've been exposed Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Laird, you you you're you're kind of famous for mixing in noir elements with your with your stories and writing straight up noir as well. Um, what what drew you to to writing this fiction, this kind of fiction, to begin with? Oh, when I was a kid, um, the circumstances of my childhood, uh, there was a lot of tall tales around the old campfire. We lived out in the wilderness in Alaska, and my father <clears throat> repurposed a lot of uh, you know. Uh, uh, spooky stories to kind of kind of as cautionary tales i think the the horror story really does and maybe even the weird story has its roots as far back as the the caveman as a cautionary i think it's i think its initial genesis or its nascent beginning was as a cautionary tale Uh, and my parents uh used it as a way to create scenarios what would you do if what would happen if and you see very you know variations of that to touch on one thing you asked Paul though as far as horror what makes good horror I just want to say that I was talking to a screenwriter the other day and uh, she asked me the same question you know what do I what do I like in horror and I said I think the best horror is often when it's doing something else it's the best horror horror is a layer horror is an element it's a it's uh, if, if you're talking about a cooking analogy, it's uh, it's it, you know it's a spice, and I think that horror is best used in that way. So another type of approach, a, a core 
story with well, it. Well, and were, then adding horror into the mix. Right. You were talking about how I mix crime mm-hmm. or noir with horror, and it kind of goes either way. I, I actually I feel like I write a lot of historical and crime and, and noir, and I inflect it with horror. Right. So so the the other and not to downplay horror at all. I just my usage of horror has evolved to the point where I like to use it as uh, like a backstop as opposed to the actual, uh, the main element. I like to introduce it in various, uh, uh, you know, technical technical ways. Now, Victor, do you look at it that way? Um, or do you, what's your perspective? Is horror the core or is it something that inflects, as, as Laird would say? Well, I like uh, the way Laird took that because I, I, I think the... Like, the most effective horror for me is usually uh, the idea that, like, part of what is horrific is when it inter- something that interrupts life in some way. But if life is from the first page or from the first moment of a movie horror, then how would you actually know that things had gone wrong, right? Like, I mean, that's part of, at least for me, with the draw of horror is uh, we were just living and then things went bad. But you have to have some of the living before the bad or else the the reader or the viewer has no uh, way to on one level no way to understand how bad things have become but I do think the other thing is no way to no doorway that they can walk through to enter the story uh, because as long as there's a few elements that feel like not like I've lived exactly like that but I understand some of those basic em- emotions those feelings of tenderness or love or uh, routine in one's life so therefore I can understand the people in this book and then it all gets upended it doesn't matter uh, if I'm exactly like them I can understand the way that's happened to me too so so going from there what what was the first thing that really scared you Victor actually the first thing that ever scared me was a, a, a version of uh, Peter and the Wolf that my mother used to read to me it was the first book I remember my mom reading to me and um the I mean I love the old I really love the old I don't I don't think it was a Disney book but like that kind of um, the lush artistic children's books where um, you could almost feel like the artists were actually trying to freak out children a little <laughs> bit and I love those because uh, uh, being a parent now I feel sometimes I, I I feel like some of the books can be a little too sanitized and it was kind of nice to. It's just there's this one panel with this wolf. It's like its bl- its eyes are almost blue, and its mouth is open, and it's dripping with saliva, and it's right over Peter, I believe, or right beside Peter. And I just felt terrified, and I would ask my mom to read that book to me every night <laughs> for that reason, you know. Uh, Paul, um, to you, what what was the first thing that you remember scaring you? Jeez, I don't know if I have a first because I've been a lifelong scaredy cat where, you know, scared of the dark, uh, you know, would sleep with stuffed animals positioned around my head with, a, you know, with an air hole to breathe through um, until I was like in my mid-20s. Uh, <laughs> but I, I will say, so I grew up, I guess my first exposure to horror would be there was a program in, in the Boston area called Creature Double Feature on Saturday afternoons. And they would, the first movie would usually be a Godzilla or a Kaiju TV. kind of movie. Yes, TV. Uh, this is on UHF before cable. I'm going to age myself here. Before um, uh, Weird Al Yankovic yeah. made an immortal. <laughs> That's right. And the second movie was like usually a black and white or a hammer sort of film. Um, 
Like I say, one of my earliest memories of being afraid is I think the first nightmare that I can remember, I'm sure I had more, was my father, like, I was sitting in the living room and my father turned into a werewolf and, like, chased me, like, you know, like we jumped through windows, like, breaking glass. And I just remember being, you know, that was a re- I was a really young kid. I have no idea where that came from, but it's a, a nightmare from childhood that I still sort of have. I love you, Dad. <laughs> I don't know what happened. You turned into a werewolf. Uh, and after that, Jaws. Jaws t- messed me up for 20 years <laughs> with shark nightmares. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Exorcist for me, because I was a young Catholic boy, and <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> Laird, how about you? What, what, what do you remember first scaring you? Uh, uh, Television-wise, uh, there was a movie, um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Cheesy, cheesy oh, movie. With the little people in the With walls, the little right? people. They inherit a house, and they're little creatures, and scuttling about and setting trip wires and whatnot and that really uh you know i watched it again recently actually um, a local film uh, film buff he had a, a showing of it in the park and we watched it and it's very cheesy but it, it does it does hold up there is some raw you can see where it would just terrify a kid but uh but the other thing that happened it's another dad story here uh my dad had a small plane when i was in my i was about four or five years old and we flew from uh, alaska down to uh oregon to visit relatives and that's a pretty you know it was a couple day journey and it was a it's a lot it's a lot to ask for a kid to sit there and so my dad um sent me in you're a big boy you can go into the you can go into the restroom on your own and so he sent me ahead and i was you know a little nervous but manning up as they say and I got in there and all of a sudden, yeah, it was the werewolf. The werewolf inhabited the next stall and it was a low growling. And I, you know, it never occurred to me that it was my dad until I ran screaming back to the. <laughs> but he actually started pounding on the side of the stall and knocked the t- the toilet paper dispenser over. And I just, <laughs> I I could those little legs were pumping, leaving that. Dads, I think they like to terrorize their. There's something they just like to terrorize their kids. It's like play fighting. You see, you know, yeah. alpha the alpha male playing with the cubs. You know, it's there's a lot of teeth there for how much fun <laughs> supposedly being had. But those teeth are they're uh, they're making dimples on the fur. Yeah, no, my dad would uh, if we were if the family was all in one room and it was at night, he would sneak out and shut off all the lights in the rest of the house. It would not turn on any other lights until you know someone ventured out just to you know for fun scary time. Back to scenario uh, building. Yeah, my mother hated it. Yeah, the, 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 we, us, you us kids loved it. Yeah. But. Now, now throwing this out to all three of you guys. Um, now, those early fears. How did you translate them into, any, into your work? Are there any specific examples? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take that one. You know what stuck with me uh, as far as the horror aspect uh, was my mother's uh, devout. Basically, a fundamentalist Christian, and her interpretation and sort of reverence for the Old Testament uh, probably is the most obvious. You know, if you're, if you're you know, delving into my work and dissecting where, where things come from, uh, I would say that that one of the strongest elements that, that that I was exposed to as a child, and you know, forty something years later, whether you know whether I intend. Uh, to put it there or not in every particular any particular story it's there uh echoes of that of that christian interpret you know that hardcore christian interpretation of the of the old testament uh and the other thing is is uh my parents introduced us to uh, you know a lot of the classics you know you were talking victor you were talking about fairy tales or folklore uh, i was introduced to stuff that wasn't sanitized when i was a kid 
and you know Snow White you know kills the queen has the queen executed you know the real deal stuff mm. and um so between that and Edgar Allan Poe, you know, I noticed that live burial appears in my work <laughs> all the time. And, I, you know, it's just it was from mom and dad, you know, reading Edgar Allan Poe to us, uh, you know, seeding that in with Peter Wolf and whatever else. I remember uh, actually. So I grew up in Queens uh, in the like late 70s, early 80s. So like uh, I suppose you say when uh, New York was abandoned, right, and was kind of like a beginning of the crack era and all this. And I remember there was this movie that was sort of um, a rip-off. It was supposed to be a Guardian Angels kind of movie, like mm-hmm. the rise of the Guardian Angels. And there was one scene in particular that I remember watching. It doesn't make any sense, but uh, the Guardian Angels are walking around in some labyrinthine subway station in New York, and they hear a woman screaming. They get down there to, like, the lowest level of the, of the station, and they find two drug dealers, or two guys, basically holding the woman, and they're trying to inject her with heroin to make her addicted, right? So now, as a, even at, like, 15, I understood that's the worst method of, be, of becoming a drug dealer, is you have to kidnap and inject everybody in New York. <laughs> it's such a bad idea, you know? Very but, inefficient. Really inefficient. But I was a kid... My mom, uh, raised by my mom, she worked as a secretary in New York, so she would come home every night. And I remember seeing on her own, you know, on the train, I remember seeing that movie and waiting at the uh, window, like vigilantly, to make sure that I would see her because I was always terrified that she was going to be grabbed by these two guys and injected with heroin, you know. I mean, a specific, specific fear. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the idea of sort of horror being something that can happen in a city, just as much as, say, in the countryside, in a suburban area, I really felt like it was uh, growing up there, seeing that show, um, a lot of my work is set in cities, largely because I was, I felt like at an early age, this place can be not just frightening, but horrific and full of those kind of terrors. Yeah. On that note, we're, we're going to take a, a quick break. Uh, sorry to cut you off. We'll be right back, and Paul Tremblay will weigh in. Hi, I'm Paul Vigna. If you do not subscribe to the Money Bee podcast, you are going to feel worse than a short seller on the day of a big rally. Go to iTunes and wsj.com slash podcasts. You want to sign up for this one. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Welcome back to the WSJ Speakeasy podcast. I'm Mike Callia. I'm here with esteemed horror and dark fiction writers Victor Laval, Paul Tremblay, and Laird Barron. We were just talking about uh, personal horrors from one's youth influencing works. Uh, Paul, you were about to say something. I, I, hate, I hate to cut you off. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. Uh, well, it's fine. My answer is going to sort of combine a little bit of both of what Victor and Laird had said before. You know, Laird had talked about horror being like the spice or, you know, the background. And, and when Victor was talking about horror being this, um, you know, upheaval within something that is, you know, at least for, for some populations, the normal, right? Um, as a kid, I was always, as a kid, I was always worried about the upheaval of my family. Like, I was very close with my parents. I wasn't like a kid that went out with a ton of friends. I mean, I, think, I feel like I was almost like abnormally close to my family. We would go to my grandparents every Sunday. That was like always a fear of mine. Um, and when I was older, actually 18 years old, 
I worked summers at Parker Brothers, and, and I rem- uh, were a, it was a toy factory. That's where my dad had worked in this factory for 25 mm-hmm. years. You know, he had started on the assembly lines, and by the end, he was, you know, in the mailroom. Um, and it was, like, this really cool, like, fun place. It seemed like everybody knew each other's name, whether it was the management or the people working on the assembly lines or the summer help, like myself. And there was one day where um, there was rumors of a sale to Hasbro going on for about a week. And then one day they called the whole plant, the whole factory, into the, the lunchroom. And they just sort of unceremoniously announced to everybody in the room that we just got sold. We're closing the plant in two months. Um, you know, so for, first, you know, the unfairness of struck me, what, and I remember feeling this way, how unfair it was that I was learning this information at the same time, you know, just a schmucky high school, college, <laughs> summer help. At the same time, these people have spent their lives in this place. You know, oh, oh crap, my dad just lost his job. Um, and I sort of just remember feeling that feeling of horror, that unsettled feeling, the same sort of feeling that I would get that was a little bit more fun when I was watching horror movies, though. Uh, you know, just the feeling of the reveal of this awfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is, now what? And to yeah. me, when I'm writing horror, like, if, if there's going to be this reveal in the story, even if, it, you know, it, whether it revolves around family or not, to me, what I'm more interested in is after this reveal, this terrible truth that's revealed in a horror story, it's n- now what are these characters going to do? Like, what decisions are they going to make? Right. Um, and to me, that's sort of the, that's where the empathy comes in, to me, which is very important for a horror story, is to have the ability to try to understand what people are going to do when faced with this. And that's, that's a good way to get into Disappearance of Devil's Rock, which is your new novel. Um, and and uh, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a family drama as well as it is, you know, as well as it has elements of horror and potentially the supernatural. Um, so the book is about um, a teenage boy who goes missing mm-hmm. and how it just obliterates the lives of his mother, single mother, mm-hmm. his sister, and his friends. Um, w- is there anything from your, you know, from your life that you, you consciously worked into this or even unconsciously now that you look back? Well, I certainly, I mean, I had to come up with an idea for this book because it was the follow-up or the next book in the deal for A Head Full of Ghosts, and I didn't have a book idea. This was sort of mercenary at this point. It's like, I have a year to write a book. What am I going to write about? It's true. The last book so, came out a year ago. Yeah, so as a parent, I was, I was like, all right, what's, you know, what scares me? Um, and obviously what occurred to me is, you know, if one of my children were to go to missing. So I just sort of started from that point, uh, though in a weird way. I really tried to detach a little bit from it because I knew it would be so upsetting. I made sure Tommy Sanderson wasn't anything like my son, mm. that he was the kid that lived down the street named Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Zach. <laughs> um, but it was hard not to put myself into you know right. the single mom in particular, right. um, you know, and the emotions that she went through. Now, now, Laird, uh, Man with No Name, um, that came out earlier this year, and, and you have some other stuff in the works too, right? Right, Man with No Name is a, a reprint. It was in a deluxe edition a right. couple of years ago, and uh, Journalstone re-released it uh, as a, a paperback. Uh, they're also bringing out my fourth collection this fall, Swift to Chase, which uh, should should be something uh, pleasing there for my my current fans who have been with me for the first three collections that sort of documented my fascination with cosmic horror. Uh, the new collection has a little you know there's a there's an element of cosmic horror but um it veers into uh the psychological and thriller genres uh, and and more uh more so for people who might not be as familiar with cosmic horror and i'm sure people who are listening do know what it is but just in case can you explain 
what it is and what well what you think it should be like cosmic horror and i'll i'll lean on uh, a brand name uh was sort of popularized uh after the death of hp lovecraft uh back in 1937 and cosmic horror is concerned with one of the elements would be deep time the minuteness or the minuscule nature of man compared to the the larger uh, universe. Uh, I, I think there's a lot that can be done with that, though. I, I, maybe the greatest misperce- you know, misconception that I that I encounter is that it has to be this cold, remote fiction. You're, you're dealing with these great forces that dwarf mankind, and kind of examine our relationship with them. But as Paul and Victor elucidated earlier, you know, good fiction is about character. Uh, the only, one of the things that I've tried, tried to do with, with my brand of cosmic horror is I, I grew up reading Jack London, uh, among others, but that would be a good example. H. Ryder Haggard, some of the naturalistic pulp, pulp writers. And I work very, and because of my affinity with, with uh, the wilderness, having lived in Alaska you know, in in the wilderness for so long, I tend to um, try to draw the landscape into uh, actually becoming a you know a, a one of the characters, and I, I think um, you really can't ignore the natural wilderness, whether that's uh, whether that's an ocean setting or whether it's a desert or or deep forest or or space. And I think once again touching on something victor said i think the urban the urban wilderness is is fair game for that uh i would encourage anybody out there interested uh in looking into that aspect uh, uh joel lane a british author who passed away uh, tragically a couple of years ago has created some of the finest cosmic horror set that's set within the boundaries of uh, various british cities and um uh, Lost districts would be would be my recommendation to try. And, and Victor, this is a very natural point to turn it over to you because your most recent novella, The Ballad of Black Tom, kind of uh, grapples head on with the Lovecraftian legacy. Um, his story, The Horror at Red Hook, uh, in, set in the the, the Brooklyn neighborhood, uh, is is his most notorious in a way because it's where his Racism kind of comes to the fore in his fiction. Why did you want to take this on, and 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 why did you want to turn this story on its head? And, uh, well, and how did you do that? Like, how did you do that? Well, I mean, uh, first, it, the first reason I wanted to take on the story is because I loved H.P. Lovecraft. I, I grew up reading his work. He was one of the first writers uh, who meant anything to me in whatever genre you want to call it. Um, and the 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 way that he wrestled with this idea of human insignificance and uh, thought of that with, um, I don't even know if horror is as much as resignation, yeah, um, made sense to me. It seemed profound to me. And it was only when I got older that I thought, that I began to see, if I started reading him at 10, it probably wasn't until I was 14 or 15 that I understood that some of the stories, like Red Hook, were filled with this xenophobia um, that was a sort of another aspect of that cosmic indifference that he was writing about to some degree because it was this idea that the universe is bigger and less forgiving to someone like him than he might hope uh, or wish 
to have happen. But uh, for me, the reason I wanted to almost like you say like remix the story for this novella was not. Um, it wasn't that I felt like well he's re- he was a great had a great imagination and was also a racist and therefore I want to confront his racism. It was that for me the vital thing is he was a he had a great imagination but his prejudices I felt limited his understanding of the breadth and depth of his own concept um, because for him he thought a universe that kind of is unimpressed with one's existence with a human with a single human beings or all of humanity's existence is the worst thing that a human being can face and i felt i knew personally and historically that that was simply untrue that there were much worse things you could face like you could face a universe that was openly antagonistic to you and in fact wanted to wipe you out and that there uh that uh that that could at least potentially be another person's idea of cosmic horror and in that way, I wanted to approach it not so, not just as like uh, finger wagging, mm-hmm. but as a counter philosophy, almost like or a counter argument to his philosophy. Now, um, and this is for for all you guys, Lovecraft just he won't go away. Um, his influence, of course, is so profound. Um, you know, Stephen King recently wrote a Lovecraftian novel, mm-hmm. and you know that guy doesn't need to establish any more bona fides. But the controversy seems to grow every year about Lovecraft. The, the debate, you know, some, some people in the field want to get past him. Other people want to continue embracing him. Um, there was a controversy last year with the, or was it earlier this year, with the World Fantasy Awards. They changed the name, right, from the Howie. It was known as the Howie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a big uproar. Uh, what's your take in general about the fight over Lovecraft and his legacy? And anyone can jump in. Okay. All right, Laird. Laird is the bold one. Paul, Paul was the guy who sat in the back of the classroom. <laughs> the way that I deal with Lovecraft, I think it's the way that we have to deal with artists in general. It's a personal. There's a certain a, a personal comfort level or relationship you have with art, much less the artist. And I think that where. I don't think there's any problem. As a matter of fact, I think it's laudable that we're interrogating this subject, uh, both sides of the issue. Right? And I think there's extremism on both sides. But I believe in, and I think for art to continue to be full-blooded, you, you, there has to be inquiry. Not only, you know, and, and not just a sl- slavish devotion or uh, an antipathy toward a particular artist or their art. There, there needs to be some sort of... Um, philosophical uh, process you know w- where we evaluate and right now where where I think where I'm at with it is that I'm less a fan of Lovecraft and and certainly not an, an adherent of his much you know his philosophies much less his his writing style as I am acknowledging that he was looking was looking at something I don't try to replicate Lovecraft. I look at Lovecraft as if he were a scientist, he discovered, you know, uh, a star system. And everybody who comes along afterward is now looking at that section of the sky and trying to figure out, well, what were you looking at? Uh, and so I'm, I, I don't really grapple uh, in the way that Victor, you know, and well, some other authors uh, besides Victor grapple with Lovecraft himself. I choose to grapple with his ideas. And 
not his not his xenophobic personal ideas, but his or, or his atheism. But what's out there, and what does it portend for humanity? And what can I do? What can I do with that? I think it's a rich, a rich field just from a, from the perspective of of, of sort of excava- excavating in a literary sense. You know what what's what's deeper and deeper. I, I think that. You could say this about many other authors. We don't need Lovecraft 2.0 or, or, or mm-hmm. Poe 2.0. We need people who were influenced by their techniques and interested in, in what they had to say and, and how they said it. And how can I build upon this? You know, to add to that, I would also say, like, I agree that, um, I mean, the other problem, at least for me growing up as, say, particularly as a, uh, in, a lover of Lovecraft, but all, I think Poe is also another one, uh, that the over time when uh, when writers literally or generally are simply regurgitating the style or the stories <laughs> the problem is it's not even necessarily whether one is loyal or not it's also that like well if he did this ground and originated this and in his time did not enjoy any fame or wealth for it and then after the fact the hard work of a small group of people helped to grow his importance and the importance of what he was writing, the idea of simply going back and re, uh, sort of like replanting the crop he planted, you sort of say, well, they did, he did that. Even if he didn't get to enjoy it, he already did that. So re- just redoing that doesn't even make sense as, like, as, a, as an artist. You say, I want to do something slightly different in some way, some, mm. some turn on that in some way that gives us some new hybrid plant. That is just beautiful and amazing to see, you know. And on the other end, I would say, at least personally, you don't want to burn the entire crop mm. either mm-hmm. uh, because you would just lose so much, you know. Yeah. Uh, but mere repetition or complete obliteration, like neither one of those seem like something that can really grow. Like you can't feed the people if you do either of those things, right? right. right. Uh, I, I would just add as someone like, I did not grow up reading Lovecraft. Actually, I feel like I came to him uh, much later than most. Um, but I, I read a lot more people who were doing cosmic horror Lovecraftian things. And by the time I read him, I was like, oh, I guess, you know, I can see sort of where some of these <laughs> ideas uh, came from. Nice. Um, I don't know. It's been strange to me to see, you know, our, we'll call it the horror science fiction fantasy sort of community sort of really break up and take a part in now these you know, I would say global cultural wars. You know, we're waiting to see what Britain does today. Um, and, you know, it's it's a part of all the that. Brexit. And it's, yeah, it's. Uh, and I, I have a hard time coming to terms with some you know otherwise rational people that I assume are rational. You know, freaking out over the fact that they're going to rename the the world fantasy or right. or change the bust. You know, it doesn't mean that people are trying to erase the history or erase you know Lovecraft from you know the history of literature. It's just it's time to name the award after somebody else who. Maybe better or better represents what's happening right now, um, in in many different ways. Um, and I have just a hard time seeing the extremist point, you know, one particular extremist side point of view on that. <laughs> um, you know, and then the whole mess with the Hugos. I mean, that's a whole other podcast, I would say. But, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's not even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just um, just be, one last thing, really quick. I wanted to ask all three of you, what? And, and I asked Paul this last year, and he gave a very interesting uh, answer, but. What's the scariest thing about the world right now? Last year, I joking, somewhat jokingly, had said Donald Trump, and it's become even more scary. Yeah, <laughs> uh, prescient. <laughs> <laughs> you 
Yeah, I mean, I would say, geez, you know, well, I just said it a second ago, but the, the cultural wars, the lack of, an, you know, for my sort of politics and beliefs aside, just sort of the lack of empathy between the people who argue or the lack of willingness to, to have even an iota of compromise or at least the, the hint of compromise yeah. um, is something that scares me. I mean, I, used to, I grew up watching like these weird 70s cult films. Uh, or like Satanist cults would come. And I, I kind of feel like that it's become like those movies are more scary to me now because it's the, the fervent belief of the cult. You know, that there's no bending. There's no right. relenting from like the singular point of view. Um, I don't know. It, that, that scares me. Laird, Victor. Uh, I would say for me, uh, something that I do, I do think about sometimes. So my wife and I are both college professors. We're relatively middle we're middle class people we're raising our kids in a nice middle class household and all this stuff um but what's scary to me is uh when i'm in that life and we're fussing over oh which pre-k are they going to go to and all these things uh that we can turn into enormous hurdles in our lives i do think of um how many how much how much of the world is sort of shaded from my sight that is being really genuinely left to be cut off, to, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, when you have a limb cut off. Uh, amputated. Amputated. Like, how much of the world, and th- this country and the world class-wise is being amputated to be left off somewhere and rot, and that my part in it is that I'm some oftentimes more worried about pre-K. Oh, jeez, Laird, <laughs> how do you follow that? Actually, it's similar to what I was <clears throat> thinking. Um, the division between, sort of, the disparity between our evolution uh, of technology with our lack of evolution of philosophy is, I think, going to be our undoing. If anything is, because that's where it all begins. We are not. I do not. Th- I think that that technological progress is so far outstripping emotional uh, our emotional capabilities. On, for example, that we we are in a lot of trouble because I do not think that we have uh, <clears throat> enough people capable of grappling with how do we handle how do we. I'm not talking about doomsday weapons anything like that I'm talking about just in general life is changing at a rate that uh, mm. we, we don't know what's going to happen 100 years from now we don't know what's going to happen 50 years from now uh, but what we are seeing uh, are these vast changes deep changes to the bedrock of society that are t- that are technologically driven and yet we do not have the emotion I do not think the average person is being you know the millennials onward are being uh or being trained, how could you train them to, to deal with the ultimate repercussions that we're going to face? Uh, if, if, if we do not have the emotional capability of even assessing these changes that are taking place, uh, what hope do we have to, to, to basically master the power that we're going to have in the next 25, 30 years? Uplifting words. <laughs> and, uh, but, us, no, yeah. it's a good point. I mean, I'm mystified by, it sounds crazy, but Snapchat terrifies me. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. And it's not just the thing. It's just the fact that it's just another thing you have to learn, another way you have to know how to communicate. And And it's going to be obsolete next month. 
All right. Well, folks, uh, we hope you enjoyed our little horror <laughs> roundtable today on the WSJ Speakeasy podcast. We were joined by Laird Barron. Thank you, Laird. Paul Tremblay. Thank you. And Victor Laval. Thank you. Uh, this has been Michael Callia from WSJ Speakeasy. You can listen to all of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And now, if you have an Android device, this is exactly what Laird (laughs) was talking about, look for us on the Google Play Music app. Just search WSJ. Thanks again. Bye. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.